Good evening, Grace Church. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. We're grateful you decided to worship with us on this Good Friday. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to John chapter 3? If you need a Bible, you can just raise your hand, and the team here would love to give you a Bible. We're going to stay in John chapter 3 for our entire time tonight. Uh, you just heard Pastor Jesse read the story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus is a ruler of the Pharisees, a very well-known man, and he's, he's already trying to engage Jesus just three chapters into the book of John. And if you follow the book of John, you know that early in the book, Jesus calls disciples to himself. His first miracle is turning water into wine, and then he clears the temple, and that, that puts Jesus on the radar of a religious leader to such a degree that this religious leader wants to meet in the middle of the night for their own safety to have a conversation with Jesus about what he is here to do and what he is here to accomplish. Uh, and this is a little a bit of a microcosm of what's happening at the macro level with Jesus and the world. And here's what I mean. I've, I've said this before if you've been around Grace Church. Uh, when Jesus was on the earth, he had a gift of simultaneously being offensive and attractive. And so it wasn't just his teaching, but his ability to perform miracles. There was authority in his hands and in his words, and people were drawn to him, and some people were repelled from him, and this happened back and forth all the way uh, that ultimately led him to the cross. You would see people being drawn to Jesus, and then you would see people being repelled from Jesus and being drawn to Jesus and being repelled to, from Jesus, and this is what leads to Good Friday. And here's the temptation of Good Friday. Oftentimes, uh, people communicating about what happens on Good Friday, they, send, they tend to focus on the events of what happened. Maybe you've experienced this. Uh, so, some people, they, they can't help it. Maybe they get emotionally uh, involved with, with the suffering of Good Friday. That What happened with Jesus was the spikes and, and the crown of thorns and the pulling of the beard and the cat of nine tails. And they really get into the gory details. Uh, and if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, I'm not saying that didn't happen. That did happen. I'm just saying there's a, there's a temptation to, to take Good Friday and go into those details. But what is interesting is that the writers of the Gospels never do that. They have a completely different focus. They do not seem to be as concerned about what happened on Good Friday as they are concerned with why Good Friday happened. Why is the cross necessary, and what does it teach us, or to say it like our flyer said it, what is so good about Good Friday? And in John chapter 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, in the middle of the night, in this conversation, Jesus casually drops an Old Testament reference. And in two verses, he reveals to us the profound truth that answers that question, what is so good about Good Friday? And I know Jesse just read it, so I'm going to start in verse 10 and connect us to this little, this little story drop Jesus gives to Nicodemus, and that will inform our answer to that question of Good Friday. So verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you don't understand these things. What is he talking about? Verse 1 through 9, Jesus said, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is trying to illustrate what it looks like for Nicodemus to experience the kingdom. And, and Nicodemus is more caught up with biology than he's caught up with theology. And he's He's really wrapped up in the Jesus, man, I don't know if you know how babies are born. I'm going to keep this PG-13, but he's like, that's not really possible. And Jesus is like, I'm talking theologically here, not biologically here. In verse 10, it's like, you don't understand these things. You're Israel's teacher. Verse 11, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things. You don't believe it. Then how are you going to believe heavenly things? And this is, this is what he... 
Good Friday is, is both physical and spiritual. There's, there's a physical thing that happened and there's a spiritual thing that happened. And Jesus is starting to get Nicodemus' head around the physical and the spiritual of Good Friday. Verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is revealing himself as the Son of Man. And in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And in verse 16, the most well-known verse probably in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Well, the most well-known verse in the Bible is connected to the story of Good Friday. You go, why would you bring up Good Friday in, in the context of John 3.16. Well, it's actually Jesus who brings up Good Friday in the context of 3.16. And here's what he says. He says, God loves the world so much. God loves the world so much that he is going to do something unimaginable. And this is the theological piece. He's going to do something unimaginable. And Nicodemus, you're not going to understand it. Anybody who saw the cross in the first century, they didn't understand what was happening. God was going to do something unimaginable. To the first century mind, the, the cross of Christ is unimaginable. They couldn't go there. They hadn't, they hadn't in, entered their mind that that would be the links of which God's love would go. But this is what happens. Theologically, God the Father, through Christ the Son, and the power of God the Spirit achieves for you the right to be born again. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. God the Father, through Christ the Son, and the power of God the Spirit is going to achieve for you the right to enter into the kingdom of God, the, the right to be born again. Do you catch it, Nicodemus? And he does not. It flies right by him. Jesus is like, it's going to be a kingdom. And to enter this kingdom, he must be born again. And Nicodemus is giving him the look like, bro, I, I know we just met, but like, you, you're not, I don't get it. And then Jesus casually drops the story of the Old Testament. And, and he does it to inform, again, the achievement that's about to be won. So to, to make sure we get this theologically before we go to this next part, Jesus is going to achieve for Nicodemus the right to be born again, justification before God. Nicodemus, Pharisee of Pharisees, you can't do enough. I have to achieve it for you. And then the power of God will move in your heart, signifying that if you believe in this, you'll be born again. It's a spiritual birth on the grounds of my achievement. I'm doing something for you. And, and if you believe that what I've done uh, is for you, then you will be born again. And you go, okay, great. That sounds amazing. Okay, theologically, I'm kind of tracking, but it's still a little messy. Okay, what, what are you going to do to achieve for me the right to be born again and enter into the kingdom of God? And that is the question that Jesus answers with these two verses. That God is going to give his son to accomplish a certain task, a certain way, and he uses two verses from the Old Testament. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, I have to be lifted up like that. John 3.16, apart from the actions of John 3.14, they don't exist. 
Something must be done. And so Jesus references this story of the wilderness, that something happened in Moses in the wilderness that's a symbol of what's going to happen in Christ. There's a connection in the symbolism. There's an achievement that you have to look at. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Begs the question, why did Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness? Well, Moses does this in Numbers chapter 20, and Nicodemus would have known this story. He would have known this story. It's five verses in the book of Numbers chapter 21 that God does something in these five verses that Jesus is telling Nicodemus is connected to the achievement of being given the right to be born again. In Numbers chapter 20, God shoots water out of a rock. He's mighty in battle and he graciously cares for his people. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, I'm going to read to you these five verses that Moses, sorry, that Jesus is alluding to when he's telling Nicodemus. Numbers 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, You've brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There's no bread and there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Four verses before, there's water, but now there's no water. We detest this miserable, miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many of the Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look on it and live. So Moses made a brown snake, and he put it on a pole, and then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the, brown, the bronze snake, they lived. This is the story that Jesus is referencing to Nicodemus, the ruler of the Pharisees, that's in connection to what's happening on Good Friday that achieves the right to be born again. God's people are disobedient in Numbers chapter 21, and they're being bitten by snakes, and they're dying, and they're powerless, and they're scared. So they go to Moses, and they say, pray for us. Help us. We've cursed God. We've disobeyed God. We've complained against God, and now we're being attacked, and we need help. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. Tragic story. I am terrified of snakes. The worst story in the Old Testament. Terrible. Snakes are biting all the people. And Moses goes to God and he prays. And he prays, God, help us. What can we do about the death that's coming against our people? And here's God's response to Moses. God says, take some brass and beat it into the shape of a serpent. And when the brass looks like the thing that's biting the people... Then lift it up high enough that anybody who looks on it will live. Do you catch the symbolism? God's method to heal when Moses asked to transform, God's method is asking Moses, transform the brass into the image of the thing that is killing the people. God tells Moses, "Take, take the brass transform it into the thing that looks like it's killing the people, then raise it up high so that all the people will look on it and live. And this is the story that Jesus uses to illustrate what must happen in order to be born again. Two verses. Hey, Nicodemus, remember the story of Moses in the wilderness, all the snakes biting the people. Nicodemus is like, of course, everybody knows that story. It's the worst story ever. Do you remember what happened to the snake? Yeah, the snake is made of brass, but you have to lift it up. And if you look on it, you'll live. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. 
That's what's happening in the story. But there's a deeper magic happening here with Nicodemus. Something else is happening because in the story of Numbers 21 is really the story of Good Friday. How? How is that the story of Good Friday? How is the story of the snake and the serpents in Numbers 21 and Moses, how does that connect to the cross of Christ? Well, here's how it connects. In order to make the brass look like the thing that was biting the people, you had to put the brass in the fire. And then you had to pull the brass out of the fire and you had to hit it with the hammer. And through beating the brass and putting it in the fire and beating the brass and putting it in the fire, you were able to change the likeness of the brass into the likeness of the thing that was killing the people. Transformation happened through the beating and through the fire to look like the thing that was killing the people. And God tells Moses, when that transformation is complete, when the brass fully looks like and has been fully formed into the image of the snakes, then lift it up for all to see. And whoever looks on the snake that you have made, they'll live. The healing of the deadly venom will come through seeing the snake that's been lifted up. Now, now imagine with me for a moment. Nicodemus is mentioned three times in the book of John. Once here in John 3, once in John 7, where he's with the uh, Sanhedrin and he tells them to maybe don't move on Jesus just yet. So he's kind of defending Jesus. And then once in John 19, where he shows up at the tomb of Jesus and brings alloys and spices in preparation to take care of the body of Jesus. So it is very likely, because of who Nicodemus was, his power and his access, it is very likely that Nicodemus followed the trial of Jesus. It is very likely that Nicodemus heard the false accusations against Jesus. It is very likely that Nicodemus saw Jesus exchanged for Barabbas in front of the people. It is very likely that he followed along to see the passion of the Christ in real life, the flogging of Jesus, the beating of Jesus, the mocking of Jesus, the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and all along the way, the brutality of the Roman execution is happening in front of Nicodemus' eyes. And you have to wonder if he thinks back to that night on the roof and that conversation with Jesus. Because history tells us that what Jesus went through should have killed him well before the cross. He should have never made it there because of how he was treated. They beat him. They pulled out his beard. They tore his flesh. The cat of nine tells. It was, it was an absolute display. It was a mockery. But why doesn't he die before the cross? Because if he dies before the cross, he's not lifted up. And if he's not lifted up, then the prophecy isn't fulfilled. Just as Moses lifted up the snake, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. During the execution of Christ, Jesus is resisting death. He's holding death back. He's refusing to die because he had to make the correlation of what happened in Numbers chapter 21. Jesus, just like the brass had to be beaten and transformed into the likeness of a snake that was killing the people. And you have to wonder if the light bulb turned on for Nicodemus watching this. Because Jesus is being beaten and transformed into the likeness of the snake that's killing the people, except we're not being killed by snake's venom, we're being killed by the venom of sin. So in those two verses where Jesus pushes back to the Old Testament story, he is telling us something. He's saying, 
that Jesus has to be transformed to look like the sin that was killing the people. And when he's fully transformed to look like the sin that's killing the people, it is then that he can be nailed to the cross where he's fully condemned, where he can fully drink the wrath of God, and he can fully be put forth just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And when they lifted up Jesus, he became a picture of what the serpent was in the wilderness. He looked like the thing killing the people. And if you want to be healed, you have to look on him and live, just like the story of the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered to yourself why it is that the Christian symbol is a cross when there are many other options? It could be a tomb. It could be a stone that's been rolled away. Why isn't it a stone that's been rolled away? It could be a palm branch from Palm Sunday. Why isn't it a palm branch? Why isn't it a donkey that Jesus rode into town on a donkey? Why isn't it a dove? Because the Holy Spirit falls like a dove. There are many other options than a Roman object of execution. The cross is the symbol of Christianity today by the power of the Holy Spirit wanting it to be the symbol of Christianity today. In 1 Corinthians 1, it says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's bad marketing to have the cross be the picture of the Christian faith. It's foolishness. Surely you shouldn't believe in that. But then 1 Corinthians 1 goes on to say the foolishness of man is the wisdom of God. And so we have a story here where the cross is the picture of what's being lifted up. If you ever wonder why steeples have crosses on them and why they're erected as high as they possibly can in a city, it's in connection to John 3.14. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. There's a connection here. And you have to wonder in that moment for Nicodemus where he's at the cross and he sees Christ lifted up. And Nicodemus sees Jesus looking like what sin deserved. You wonder if in that moment it clicked for for Nicodemus and he's just crushed by the story. That he remembers those two verses. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Because Jesus was telling Nicodemus the reason why Good Friday is good. Because Jesus is going to achieve something for Nicodemus and for the whole world. But in order to achieve that, he must do something unimaginable. So what is so good about Good Friday? The answer is found in 1 Corinthians 5 where the Apostle Paul says, He became sin who knew no sin. Jesus who knew no sin, he became sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the good news of Good Friday. That he became what we were so that we could become what he is. Jesus who never sinned took the punishment of those who had sinned by becoming our sin. He was transformed into our likeness so that we could be transformed into his likeness. He became it without doing it. So Jesus wasn't a liar, but he became a liar for you. Jesus wasn't a thief, but he became a thief for you. Jesus wasn't an adulterer, but but he became an adulterer for you. Jesus never had selfishness, but he became selfishness for you. Jesus never gossiped, but he became gossip for you. He never had pride, but he became pride for you. He comes up on the cross as the epitome of all sin. Not only what you have done, but anything you will do. 
He became all sin, every sin, my sin, your sin, past sin, present sin, future sin, all of it. He became all of it so he could pay for all of it. In other words, if Jesus does not cover everything on the cross, then the cross means nothing. If he does not cover everything, the cross does not mean anything. If Jesus doesn't become every sin on the cross, then we can only preach the gospel to certain kinds of people. Only certain kinds of people can be saved because there's some of you that have done sin that's too bad, that's too far off, and somehow the cross doesn't cover that. But in the gospel, we have all people covered because Christ died for all sins. So no weary sinner in the world will stumble up to the cross no matter how dark their past, no matter how broken their present If they stumble to the cross, they will never have the blood of Jesus pull away from them and say, no, I am sorry you have sinned too much. No, I am sorry you have done too many things in your past. The blood of Jesus says one thing. I can cover that too. I can cover that too. Bring your sin to me. I can cover that too. And when God judges our sin and he sees the blood of Christ, he doesn't ask if we were worthy To receive the blood of Christ, he simply sees that the blood of Christ has made us worthy. It's an exchange, and it's what makes Good Friday so beautiful and so brilliant. That's why Numbers 21 is so profound in connection to Good Friday, because all of us have been infected by the venom of the serpent, and there is only one cure. It's to look to the one who's been lifted up. Look to the one who was transformed into the likeness of our sin in our place. Look on him and live. And when we do look on him and live, we do see that he became our sin in our place. When we believe the truth of 1 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, when we believe that, then we can join with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What that means is on Good Friday, your judgment day, your judgment day, it's so so beautiful. You were judged in Christ. So what Good Friday does is it puts judgment day behind you, not in front of you. You have no judgment coming because your judgment happened on Good Friday. There's no condemnation left for you, Grace Church, because the condemnation has all been poured out on Christ. Judge, God won't judge me now because he's already judged me in Christ. That moves us, that challenges us, that changes us. Listen, I I love Easter, and we're going to dress up, and we're going to party, and it's going to celebrate on Sunday We're going to get people baptized, which is the picture of John 3 and the new birth. Like, all that's happening, and it's going to be amazing. I I love Easter, but let's, let's not, for a second, get the story twisted. The resurrection of Christ does not overturn the defeat of the cross. No, 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 no. The resurrection of Christ reveals the victory of the cross. The resurrection does not overturn the defeat of the cross. The resurrection reveals the victory of the cross. To say it another way, Good Friday wrote a check, and the resurrection proves there are sufficient funds to pay for the check. Check does not bounce. Amen. Younger people, the car does not decline. They don't know how checks work. 
checks used to bounce if you didn't have enough money. And they would put it on the wall of the grocery stores. Bad days. <laughs> Jesus covers that too. Good Friday was not a defeat. It was a victory. And, and the resurrection reveals that victory. that It's been paid in full. Something was paid for in full. That, that means there's none of your sin left. So, so we've been saying this whole time in the book of Mark, that everything that happened in Adam was redeemed by everything that happened in Christ. That Good Friday is a victory. And Easter is the reversal of the whole world. Easter is the reversal of your whole life. It's, it's the best story in the world that Adam and Eve were disobedient to God the Father in the garden, but Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's obedient to the Father. That's a reversal. Adam, in the first garden, he cowers, and he fails to protect his bride against the serpent, but Jesus courageously protects his bride, the church, from the serpent. It's a reversal. Adam and Eve, they hide behind a tree, naked and covered in shame, but Jesus hangs on a tree naked to conquer our shame. It's a reversal. Adam and Eve, through their sin, they usher in the curse of thorns. Jesus wears a crown of thorns to usher in salvation from sin. It's a reversal. Adam and Eve, they begin in paradise, but they're forced outside of the gate due to their sin. Jesus dies outside the gate, but ends up in paradise due to the cross and then blows the whole thing open for anybody who's willing to look on him and live everything that happened in Adam. Amen. Everything that happened in Adam was redeemed by everything that happened in Christ. And this is the gospel of what's been achieved for you. This is how you have the right to be born again. This is how you enter the kingdom of God. And it's available to us. And then the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he gets his disciples together. And he tells them what's going to happen. He says, my body's going to be broken and my blood's going to be spilled for you. I'm going to achieve something for you. But I want you to, to remember what I achieved for you. I want you to join in what I achieved for you. I want you to remember it. And so he offers them the bread and the wine of communion the Last Supper. And a few years ago, I heard uh, a theologian teaching on the Last Supper, and I was moved by what he said. I'm going to tell you his understanding of the, the Lord's Supper that shook me. This, this theologian said that when Jesus took the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus used a very specific phrase when he handed them the elements of communion. This theologian said Jesus looked at his disciples with the bread and the wine and he looked at them and he said, take and eat, take and eat, take and eat. And in those three words, take and eat, something very significant is happening because the last time the words take and eat were used were in the Garden of Eden and they were not good words. That's the same word the serpent used when he gave the fruit to Adam and Eve. And he said, take and eat. 
and sin entered into the world at an invitation to take and eat. Everything was broken because we took and we ate. We walked away from God because we took and we ate. Take and eat is the darkest invitation in the whole Bible. And when Jesus breaks the bread and he pours the wine and says, this is my body and this is my blood, this, this pastor said, it's like, it's like Jesus held out the elements and looked at Satan and said, hey, Satan, watch this. Take and eat. Take and eat. That the same words that were used to bring sin and death and shame into the world became the same words that were used to usher in our salvation. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It moves me. And the invitation still stands. The invitation is as real today as it was at the Last Supper the first time. That right here today, the invitation stands. You can look on him and live. You can be born again. You can have your whole world redeemed because of what Christ has achieved for you. You just have to receive it. You have to receive the invitation. And so tonight as we continue in worship, we want to offer you the invitation of communion. That right now you would respond to the word of God by taking the elements and responding in communion. And we do this in reverence and in recognition of how much it costs to achieve our right to be born again. We feel the weightiness of our sin and we feel the glory of our Savior. So I want to invite you tonight. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and I want you to come forward and take the cup and take the bread and celebrate the victory of Good Friday proven on Easter. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for the achievement of Jesus. We thank you that just as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And God, we recognize that that is, that is unbelievable to us, that you would go to that end to achieve our salvation. So God, I pray that tonight we weep over our sin and we weep over the joy of our Savior. God, as we come forward and we take communion, we, we feel the weight of our sin that costs you your life. We also feel the weight of your love towards us. And God, if there are people here tonight who do not believe, who have not come to faith in Christ, that they would accept the invitation tonight to look on you and live. And that they would believe that if they come to you, you, you don't back away from them because of their sin, but rather you cover them. So, Lord, be among your church right now as we worship, as we take communion, as we pray together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.